Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Greta, your host. Thank you so much for joining us today, and please stay with us for this hour, as we are going to open the Bible together and uh, continue to study on a beautiful theme, Three Cosmic Messages. We just started this study with uh, some thoughts and uh, searching in the Bible about... uh, the beautiful thing that Jesus wins, Satan loses. But today we are going to move into a moment of destiny. And I'd like to welcome our panel today. It's good to have you with us, uh, Ken. Thank you, Nick. Always a privilege to be here today. And Joe, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Nick. Welcome to the program, Len. Thank you for the welcome, Nick, and hello, listeners. Lydia, it's good to have you part of this, too. I feel very privileged. Praise the Lord for this. Jerry, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure to be here. And Will, it's good to have you part of this program, too. Thank you, Nick. I just want to thank you, Will, uh, uh, for your extra time in preparation because you are going to lead us today and facilitate this discussion. Yeah, thank you for putting some thoughts together there. And uh, I will hand it over to you, Will, if you like to just take us through. Thank you, Nick. I would like to start by focusing on a text, a text of Scripture. And it's Revelation 14, verses 14 and 15. The text says, Then I looked... And behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice, to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, I think the thought on the forefront of this text is the climactic event of the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of secular history. And history as we know it here on earth, the scene really calls out to us with an urgency to meet this event with appropriate preparation. There is so much at stake. I think we should pause to pray for both ourselves and our listeners. And I want to ask Lydia if you'd offer this prayer for us, please. Holy Father in heaven, glory and honor to you. Thank you so much for the privilege to meet with you again, to talk to you and learn from the richness of your holy word. Father, we're coming before you in humility, with respect and humbleness. Please receive us as we are, and empower us with the power of your Holy Spirit to understand your Holy Word. Give us insights and understanding to apply it in every circumstances of our lives as Jesus did. Father, may your Holy Word touch every heart and to make an impact, to decide to choose you and realize that Uh, making the right decisions in our lives will affect our destiny with you. Father, we trust in you, as we always do, because you keep your word, Father. 
We thank you so much for everything we receive from your holy hand. Father, honor and glory to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lydia. Since the advent of big cinema, uh, most of us would recall those blockbuster movies about interstellar conflict. They have, for years, portrayed a final destructive end to human civilization and even the aftermath. In most cases, these confrontations on the movies against the inhabitants of the Earth have been sudden and decisive, without adequate warning before the event, leaving very little time for proper preparation. And so the movies go. At the same time, the Bible has given us predictions of an end to day-to-day life as we know it here on earth. These startling announcements, though, come with a comforting assurance that, and I'd like to read Amos 3 verse 7, they come with a comforting assurance, before the Lord does anything, he tells his plans to his servants, the prophets. God has always spoken in advance to his people, giving them whatever relevant truths they needed to hear at that time. Inhabitants of earth have received forewarning of every major and decisive event to take place. We think of the warning about the flood in Genesis 6 verse 7. He informed the people of earth before the history-changing event surrounding the birth of Jesus into this world, even adding uh, emphasis on the hope that he brings in Daniel chapter 9. Then the confronting information about a judgment to come, a judgment to take place prior to Jesus' return to this earth, Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. It's quite an awakening, though, to realize that this is talking about our day, we can take comfort in the fact that he has not left us in darkness regarding any earth-shaking final event before Jesus' return either. Before we reach these crossroads, God chooses to speak to us in advance to urge an appropriate response. He certainly doesn't intend for any of us to face these things unprepared or even unaware. Right now in these last days of human history, he has sent a special message, can I call it a special message, to the world and to his people, designed to meet the need of the hour. Now I'd suggest that this is it is very important for us to understand what that dramatic message is for our time, and how it is depicted in Scripture. So, Len, I'd like to leave the important task of describing what it's all about to you. Could you take us there, please? Yes, just to follow up on what you've just mentioned, Will, I imagine lots of our listeners have heard about the doomsday clock. This is where a group of environmental scientists based in Chicago and the United States have a look at what's going on in the physical world and also in the social world, and they determine a time when life will no longer be possible 
on planet Earth because of pollution and all sorts of things. And so they have moved the doomsday clock to only seconds before midnight. Now, I've heard them speak about this earlier, and they say by the year 2050, it's likely that planet Earth will not be suitable for life. Well, God, as Will has beautifully told us, has also given a message applying to the last times. And we find this message in the book of Revelation, chapter 14. In fact, there are three messages. And as you read this chapter, and I hope you do, listeners, read Revelation 14, it mentions angels. Angels are messengers with a message to give to the world to prepare people for the time of the end. The first message is found in Revelation 14, verse 7. Now, I'm not going to explain these in detail, but just give a quick overview. The first message is you need to fear God and worship him and accept and acknowledge him as the creator of the world because, and a warning is put in the warning, the time of judgment, that's God's judgment of mankind, has come. And then in verse 8 is the second message. Babylon, which is uh, a term given for false religion, a false system of worship, is going to collapse. The second and the third message is the consequences of participating in this false worship system are going to come on the world sooner rather than later. And then there's some advice tacked on to the third message. It says that God's people need to be patient, they need to be obedient, and they need to be faithful. And this is the substance of what we're studying, not just today, but through the rest of the time that we're going to study uh, about God's special messages to mankind. So God has told us ahead of time what's going to happen we need to watch out and look what's happening and prepare ourselves to be right with the Lord so that we are not on the wrong side of the ledger, so to speak. Yes, aptly put. Thank you, Len. Len has explained that Revelation 14 is Jesus' final message of mercy to a fallen and rebellious world. A civilization that has for more than 6,000 years been sorely confronted with sin and evil. The truth is, though, there will come a day when every human being on planet Earth will have made their final, irrevocable decision either for or against Jesus. Revelation's life-saving message of Christ's righteousness, delivering us from the condemnation of sin, as well as the grip of sin on our lives, will in the last days be proclaimed loudly and widely. 
God has ordained that it should be clearly heard by absolutely everyone. It is presented as the messages from heaven, loudly echoing and re-echoing throughout the earth. And yet, panel, considering the staggering percentage of people who have not yet heard the life-saving appeals of the gospel, I'm sure you, like me, are left wondering how, just how this proclamation will reach every country, every village, every living individual before the imminent and glorious return of our Lord Jesus to this world. You know, humanly speaking, it seems an impossible mission. So it's appropriate for us to ask, what assurance did Jesus give regarding the worldwide spread of the gospel just before his second coming? This reading comes from Matthew twenty four fourteen. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And I'd like to contrast that with a passage from Revelation 14.6, which was referred to by Lynn. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And of course, he said in a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. So we'll Jesus gives us the assurance in Matthew 24 that the gospel of the kingdom will indeed be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and the end will come. Now, just before that that uh, passage, the disciples had asked Jesus, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And, of course, we read all the number of signs that herald his return. And he goes on to tell them about the persecution of those who are faithful because of the uh, increase in evil in the world and that the love of many will grow cold. And doesn't this just mirror the world we are living in today? And, of course, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, assures us that the message of the first angel is proclaiming the message in a loud voice. And uh, we've read that, the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. This is very reassuring because no one, no one should be surprised by the return of Jesus. There'll be no one saying, oh, I didn't know. This isn't fair. I had no idea. God leaves no one ignorant about what is going to happen. In fact, Jesus tells us three times in Revelation 22 that he is coming quickly. 
There's no time to waste. Everyone will have made a decision either for God or against him. And when Jesus returns, there will only be two camps. There'll be no fence sitters. I just want to bring a couple of points here. These passages in uh, Matthew and Revelation, as we are talking today about um, a moment of destiny. Now, when we approach this a moment of destiny, we know that when that moment comes, that's not much afterthought. And the reason I'm saying that because we may think, as you pointed out earlier, Will, that looking at this world, we're thinking when that will be accomplished, where Jesus said that when this gospel will reach to the end of the world, to every person on this planet Earth, then Jesus will come. And in our mind, we may think, oh, that's long, long still to go. Let's consider this. In the last period of time, maybe in the last 20, 30 years, this world has been reached through various means. For example, what we do right here, broadcasting on the radio, these programs can reach to people all around the world. And it's done at this stage through various means, as I said, media and the Internet. The gospel, it's available almost to every person on this planet Earth. There are maybe very little few pockets which maybe haven't been reached or we don't know yet. But what I believe that the field is ripened. That's why we are talking about that time of reaping. Now, I come from an agricultural background, and I know that when the time of harvest comes, there will be also some grains there which are not matured or not. To, that's it. You are harvesting. And uh, it, this is the time to consider for everyone who hears the word of God not to be ignorant, not to think, oh, there is plenty of time because there are many other people who haven't given their life to Jesus. That's not the point. The point is the availability of the good news of the gospel to me and you. And if we hear today this uh, program that reached you, and I hope you take the right decision, my dear friend. Very appropriate words, Nick. I know that procrastination has not only been a thief of time, but it's also snatched away the hope of millions. Uh, With what awaits the human race, what is the best advice we might offer to secure our future in Jesus Christ. Jerry? You know, it's often been said that uh, today is the most important day of your life. You can't change what happened yesterday and because it's gone forever. And there's no guarantee that you'll be here tomorrow. Remember that Jesus said, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Matthew 24, verse 42. So what's he saying? Isn't he saying, Be ready? When I return, it's all over, and it will be too late to get your house in order. Don't put it off until the last moment. Don't procrastinate. I think we have to start building a relationship with Jesus today by choosing to trust and obey him in all areas of our life. If we do this in the good times and and personally experience his guiding hand, 
and love for us, which is our privilege, then we won't panic and lose confidence in him when the hard times come, as they surely will. Now, there are a few pertinent texts in the Bible that say, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And if we do that, if we walk with God day by day, then we will be in a, in a state of readiness. Uh, Joshua famously said, just before they were going to enter the promised land, choose you this day whom you will serve. And we have to ask ourselves that question as well. As Ellen White has said, God does not change the character at his coming. The work of transformation must be done now. Our daily lives are determining our destiny. I've uh, read the book written by Bear Grylls about the tremendous amount of training that he and other soldiers had to go through to become part of, I think it was the group, the Red Berets, a select group of soldiers, and they had to go through some uh, terrible physical feats to be prepared. But the whole thing was, all this training was to prepare them for a climactic event. In the, the case of Bear Grylls, it never actually happened, but they were being prepared. And the same thing goes for us as Christians, or those of you who are not Christians, who are committing yourself to the Lord. This is a time of preparation, because Jesus is coming again. That's the most certain thing in the world today, that Jesus is coming again. And we must be prepared for him. Indeed, Len. And if I could just please add that um, a little while ago, we had a series of lessons called In the Crucible with Christ. And as we all know, um, often you are faced with really confronting situations in your life. It can be uphill. It can be really tough at times. Um, but Jesus has promised that he would never leave us or forsake us. And it's when you maintain your focus on him through those difficult times that you that you know it's a, a genuine, real experience. He's there with you. And that's that's what I mean by walking with God day by day. Uh, now is the time to develop that connection with him. Very important. Yes. Joe, you had a comment? Just a, just a brief one. Um, character is not based on one decision and often we think it might be, you know, right at the end, I will make the right decision. And we sort of keep that aside for some time in the future, like a to get, you know, out, get out of jail card. But the truth is that by beholding, we become changed and that we are slowly being molded by the decisions that we make. Um, our character develops. It, but, you know, if we behold the Christ, Jesus Christ will become more like him. If we are looking at other things or a different master, then we are slowly being molded into his image. And I guess at, guess at the other, at the t end of time, it will be evident whom we serve. It won't be like you know, we can't make a radical decision back then right at the end because 
all the decisions have led to this very point. Yes. Ken? Yes, I just wanted to add that maybe a number of listeners perhaps are thinking, look, we've heard this so many times about the return of Jesus, but I'd like to point out that the signs today that are given very clearly in Matthew 24 make it extremely obvious that this is the time period we are in at this present time. And this, as the saying goes, is the real McCoy. This time, Jesus will definitely arrive. It is so, Ken. Legend? I would like to add the fact that my character is getting molded in Jesus' hands. I am like the, in the process of molding of, of the of pottery. So Jesus is the potter. I am the clay. So Jesus molds me every day in every circumstance of our lives through the hardship, through absolutely everything. So it's a long process, cannot be done quickly, cannot be done as a sudden. So it's a process. We know Jesus and we have to leave ourselves to be molded by him through everything we go. Yes, Nick. And also it's very important to acknowledge the urgency of the message. In particular, as we are uh, talking about um, uh, in Revelation 14, as it's known as the three angel messages or, you know, our um, theme for, for this next few weeks, it's about the, the cosmic messages. Now, in Revelation 14, if we look from, uh, was already mentioned from verse uh, 6 to 12, it talks about a particular message. You pointed out here uh, on the panel that uh, this is Jesus' message for this time. I would like to mention this is the present truth, if you like. Now, in history, there are always some things which are applicable in particular for that time called present truth. This is where we are and what we want to talk. We don't want to sound alarmists or uh, talking about these things, the law of God, uh, God the creator, the message is coming through, but we want to bring to the attention of everyone. There is no time now to just uh, take it easy. It's an urgency. Take a decision now. If you haven't taken a decision for God yet, Take it now. The signs are showing us that he's coming soon and we are not going to miss that glorious event. Very appropriate words, Nick. We have a promise in Mark 14, verse 62, that you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We notice an interesting title here to describe Jesus as he returns to the earth. Why do you think Revelation uses this title for Jesus. Yeah, we see in Revelation 14, verse 14, easy to remember. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. That term, son of man, is found many, many times in Scripture. In fact, Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, 82 times in the Gospels. That's quite a lot. 
It was one of his favorite titles. He used it as a, an expression of endearment to identify with us. He is a savior who understands us. He's experienced our temptations and he's passed through our trials. It is this son of man who is returning to take us home. The Jesus who comes for us is the same Jesus who lived among us. He's qualified to redeem us because he became one of us. And yet as one of us, he met the full fury of Satan's temptations. And yes, he was victorious. So if we, if we dwell on that for a minute, he experienced life exactly as we do. Um, he had, uh, well, he suffered rejection and abuse, disappointment, hunger and thirst and fatigue. As I mentioned, temptations like we never have to, but also happiness in the presence of friends and joy when people accepted his invitation to become his followers and gratitude for acts of kindness that were shown to him by individuals such as Mary Magdalene and Zacchaeus and the many others whom he was able to heal both physically and spiritually. Again, many times in the book of Matthew, we find Jesus referring to himself as the son of man. Perhaps I could just go through a few of those quickly. Matthew 16 verse 27 says, For the Son of Man will come in his glory, in the glory of his Father, with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Matthew 24 verse 27, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24 verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory so there are many references to jesus as the son of man he wants to identify himself with the human family and that is a good thing for us because it means that um, we have a savior who has passed through our experience we can come to him with whatever problem we may have Nothing is in our experience that he hasn't prepared for. So we can have confidence that Jesus is fully man and fully God and that he is able to help us in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Yes, that identification with man. Let's review how did Jesus leave the earth and how will he return? Uh, as we read in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, it says, I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man. And also in Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, um, it says that uh, the disciples stood gazing up into heaven while they watched. Uh, he Jesus was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Jesus ascended in a cloud of angels and will return with a cloud of angels. The angels then declared to the amazed disciples in Acts uh, chapter 1 verse 11, This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. 
Here there is a divine truth embedded in this passage that may not be apparent. Uh, this same Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who walked the dusty streets of Nazareth, ministered in the crowded streets of Jerusalem, healed the sick in the villages of Israel, and preached the grassy hillsides of Galilee, that he is coming again soon. The Son of Man also is mentioned in the light of the judgment in, the, in Daniel 7. So throughout the scripture, clouds uh, represents the presence of God. And um, I would like to mention quite a few examples. In uh, Exodus uh, chapter 13, verse 21, it says that the Lord went before the Israelites leading them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and in night time by a pillar of fire. At Sinai, when Moses received the Ten Commandments, the record states that a cloud covered the mountain. In Exodus 24, 15, God's glory rested upon Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. It's mentioned in Exodus chapter 24, verse 16. Uh, when the ancient sanctuary in the wilderness was dedicated, the presence of God was revealed as a cloud resting at the door of the sanctuary. Another example is that when the high priest entered the most holy place of the sanctuary, God's presence was also made known by his appearance in the cloud above the mercy seat. It says in Leviticus chapter 16 verse 2. And in Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 to 14, uh, it's mentioned the magnificent judgment seen described by Daniel when Daniel beholds one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Also at his ascension, Jesus ascends in a cloud and when he comes again in glory, he will descend in the clouds. So the presence of clouds is showing us that the presence of God is there. Joe, um, yes, uh, Lydia has spoken a little about the presence of the, um, the Son of Man appearing in the Old Testament connected to the judgment. Uh, do you want to add any words, significance of that? Well, I think that um, there are references to the term Son of Man in the Old Testament, one that you're alluding to in, in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, we have a, a heavenly courtroom scene portrayed. And if I just may read that section, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and some versions say the judgment was set, and the books were opened. Now, this very scene is uh, mirrored in Revelation 4 and 5 for those who are interested in, in, in reading these accounts. And so um, 
the passages in Daniel are further expanded and given more detail in Revelation 4 and 5. But it goes on, it says, I saw in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed Now, here is the Son of Man. Here the Son of Man actually refers to Christ. The term of Son of Man is quite poignant. In this majestic scene, if we could just imagine it, our mind's eyes, a throne flaming with fire, a river of fire flowing from before him, thousands upon thousands standing before him. And in this awe-inspiring moment in time, there is one Son of Man with a capital S, Son of, son of man who represents this fallen race. I think a number of people have touched on this before an enslaved, you know, enslaved in a mess and unable to free or redeem itself without a divine intervention, a divine savior, one who looks like them, one who became like them. We have every reason to be confident, not presumptuous, but confident in his ability to save to the uttermost, and that comes from Hebrews 7.25, it is very difficult to grasp the love of God. And if I just might read a quick um, quote here, and God hath given him authority to execute judgments also because he is the son of man, because he has tasted the very dregs of human affliction and temptation and understands the frailties of sins of men, because in our behalf he has victoriously withstood the temptations of Satan and will deal justly and tenderly with the souls that his own blood has been poured out to save. Because of this, the Son of Man, with a capital of S, is appointed to execute the judgment. And, of course, courage comes from Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Wonderful. Nick? I just want to uh, again point out a um, couple of things in regard to the clouds we mentioned here in the Bible. Now, as we know that um, in many parts of the Bible describes that, that the presence of the angels because we may just think a cloud is just uh, forming, you know, the vapor and all those things. Actually, Jesus is surrounded by the angelical host. And it's important that, as Lydia pointed out, and Joe just mentioned, in those moments of big importance, decisions, God is always accompanied by the angels. What that tells us? Tells us that the angels are at our disposition also. We just need to ask the Father, ask God, ask Jesus, and we'll be helped out. Now, Jesus, as the Son of Man, he identified himself with one of us, each one of us. And even though many people may even go that far to say that Jesus doesn't have part of the Godhead, he's not divine, and so on and so forth, the point here is that the Son of Man, which is Jesus, it's accompanied by the angelical hosts. And we can also benefit of this 
help if you like. Jerry? Yeah, I just want to uh, pick up on what Joe said. Um, she read a text from Romans 8, the first verse, and it says there, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And as she rightly pointed out, that's not presumption. We can have that assurance, that confidence. And um, I was actually thinking of chapter 5 of Romans, where five times it's, it, it talks about um, the abundance of God's grace, juxtaposed to the abundance of sin everywhere. The whole the whole world is drenched in sin. We are in fact our whole you know our natures are corrupted by sin. So where does that leave us? Well, without Christ, it would leave us dead and buried, basically, with no hope. But because of our faith in Him, we can have the the, the blessed assurance that with Jesus, the Son of Man standing before the Father in the judgment, with confidence in him, though sin abounded, grace much more. Five times in chapter 5 of Romans it says that. So we can have that confidence. And what a, what a reason to rejoice. Certainly. Thank you for those contributions. John describes Jesus as coming as the Son of Man, having a crown, uh, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. I wonder if we could stop for a moment and talk about the two words, crown and sickle. Uh, Can you help us there, uh, Ken? Yes. In bygone days, more than today, kings and many rulers of countries wore crowns to symbolize power and authority. The word for crown is stephanos. It's a victor's crown. When an athlete won an important contest, he or she was given a Stephanos, a crown of honour and victory. A crown was once placed on the head of Jesus here on earth by sinful men, a crown of thorns, symbolising shame and mockery. He was once despised and rejected of men. He was reviled, ridiculed, spat upon, beaten and whipped and put to death. But now he wears a crown of glory and honour. When he comes again soon, he will be King of Kings, Lord of Lords, to rule his everlasting kingdom. Now we also read in Revelation 14 and 14, he, meaning Jesus, has a sharp sickle in his hand. The Greek word for sickle is terpeni, which means a gathering hook, especially for harvesting, according to the dictionary. Now some people reading this may think, Jesus is going to have a physical sickle or cutting tool in the stand when he returns. But that is not the case. It is talking about the harvest of people he is going to get his angels to collect from the earth. Now, I think it's very interesting to note the wording here. In his hand is a sharp sickle. All will be reaped or harvested. None will escape this event. Lydia. I would like to also add uh, that I observed here that there are two types of crown. One is a, a red garland, uh, which was awarded to an ancient athletic in the Greek Olympics. And Jesus uh, is wearing this crown of victory now. But when he will come, he will wear a royal crown, which is called a diadema. Yeah, marvelous image, isn't it? The very next verse after the mention of the crown and sickle speaks about an end-time harvest. 
what's being taught here then? Well, before I answer the question, I'd like to say that Nick is not the only one on the panel with an agrarian background. As a small boy, about 10 years of age, I used to drive the tractor and um, pull the combine and we would sow the grain. And I remember each time we began seeding, my father would kneel down by the tractor and the combine and he would pray and invite the Lord's blessing. And inevitably, when the rains came, the grain sprouted and grew. And eventually came to the time in the summer when the uh, green disappeared and the fields were golden and the grain was ready to be harvested. Now, Jesus used similar things uh, to illustrate Bible truths. And in Matthew chapter 13, he talks about the parable of the sower who sowed the seed. And then he spoke about the parable of the weeds and then the parable of the mustard seed. All these were truths which pertain now to our time. And in Revelation chapter 14, verse 15, this uh, agrarian-type illustration comes to the fore. And this is what it says. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice, to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, when we used to uh, harvest the grain on the farm, there were certain weeds that had grown in the paddock, and usually those weeds were or the seeds from those weeds, I should say, they were not kept. The machinery got rid of them because they were quite often a different size and a different weight. But the harvest is actually the saving of God's own people, those who have been faithful to him. The weeds, as explained in Matthew chapter 13, the weeds can grow until the harvest time, and then they got rid of. The point of all this is that you and I need to be part of the grain because when Jesus comes, it's not the wicked people who are going to be saved. It's those who are faithful. And I appeal to you listeners to make it right between you and God so that when this time of reaping actually comes, that you'll be ready to meet your Lord and to go with him and to spend eternal life in his presence. That's a very appropriate invitation then. In Revelation 14, there are two harvests mentioned. Joe, could you take us there? I will try. <laughs> in Revelation 14, 14 to 20, we have imagery of angels and sickles, and Lynn has just spoken about that, and harvests, grapes, and a wine press. These are metaphors. Angels don't swing literal sickles. The wine press also is a metaphor. We will see that there is a polarization 
We have those who have found Christ, salvation in Christ and have allowed him to change their lives and they are the wheat. And then there are those who obstinately rejected God's mercy and offer of salvation and these are the grapes destined for the winepress. No harvest takes place until the fruit is ready. There will be no guesswork. There will be no one trying to be good but failing miserably. It will be evident to all whom they serve because they have been molded into the master they serve. There are only two groups, and there's always only been two groups, um, those who are with Christ and those who are against him. And we might remember the parables of Jesus, some of them that he told of the wheat and the tares, those that are wise, those that are foolish, the righteous and the wicked, those that are taken and those that are left behind. There is no neutral ground for the undecided, no fence sitting. In the, in the end, the outworking of the master they serve will be evident to all. And time is up. And Christ says the words in Revelation 22, 11, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. What is happening is that their destiny at this point is fixed. And those who have embraced evil and Satan's way of operating will be destroyed. It is not that God is angry or that he has stopped loving them, but no, but that no amount of time or more time will change anybody's mind. The destinies of all have been fixed by their own choices, some to everlasting life and some to eternal oblivion. Now, I think as all already has been mentioned, this is not a one-off decision made right at the end, but we have seen it's a process decided by the choices we make each day by the way we live our lives. Hence, in Revelation 14, the harvest is truly ripe. Sin has reached its limits. Rebellion has crossed the line of God's mercy. A loving God has done everything he can to do well for us, including offering himself on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. Text that comes to my mind is the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23, and something that should give us all courage and a desire to be with Christ is he, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I, th I find that very encouraging. There is no reason, no reason for anyone to perish. Today is the day of salvation. Thank you very much. Um, panel, I want to ask for your quick thoughts on if they, if you can think of anything, uh, just anything that God could still have done to save lost sinners for his kingdom. What do you think? Well, I don't think there's anything at all God could have done more than what he's done. It's been around 2000 years since Jesus has been on the earth. That message has gone through all that time, it's still going through today. And as we mentioned at the very start of this program, down through the ages, God tells his messengers what is about to come, what is about to happen. And this has been going on for thousands of years now, but we're coming to the end of that, and everyone will have the same opportunity to accept or reject Jesus. Yes, mercy has been very patient. Uh, Joe? I think absolutely nothing more could have been done. 
the whole, the treasuries of heaven were poured out in Christ on our behalf. So what more could God give than he giving himself through his own son? Yeah, look, we know that uh, God is all wise, all knowing, all loving. And surely if there was a better way, a different way, he would have come up with that. But uh, this is the best he could do. And it is the best. There is no other way. And we can have confidence in our God. Yes, Len. Yes, God is not stingy. And there is nothing more that he could do apart from what he has done. So true. You know, some 60 years ago, something was said to me by a Christian friend that securely embedded itself in my life. What he said was this. Will I listen to a sermon entitled Eventually, Why Not Now? He said, we all know that the Bible says that one day, at the very end, every knee will bow before the Lord. Yes, that means every knee, the righteous saved and the unrighteous lost. Or, confronted by the presence of his majesty and glory, will at last bow and confess that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Sadly, though, too many will offer that acknowledgement too late to say themselves. Now, my friend said, well, if bowing before the Almighty is irrevocably in your future, and in the future of every living being on this planet, then, if eventually, why not now? We're all going to bow. Why shouldn't it be now? Now will make an eternal difference. I would like to offer the same invitation to acknowledge Jesus as Lord to everyone today, to bow in submission before him, and claim him as sovereign Lord of our lives. And I will ask Jo if she can pray that prayer for us in this regard. Heavenly Father, as we have discussed and studied, you have done all that could possibly have been done to save us, and you long to be with us throughout eternity. We know that you love every child of yours, whether they know it or not. And, Lord, we pray that all who have heard our message today will have the courage, including us, all of us, have have the courage and the desire to choose you each day. Let it be our moment of destiny that we live daily by day by day with you, being obedient to you, loving you, loving others, and reflecting your image to all those around us. This is not going to happen in one or two days, but we pray that we know that if we walk with you, it will be the case. So I pray that that you'll be with each person who might be listening, each person on the panel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Thank you so much, um, uh, Joe, for that uh, heartfelt uh, prayer and panel for all your contribution today. Indeed, today was um, opening to our uh, minds, you know, our attention, uh, the importance of decisions 
a moment of destiny. Now, we are going to talk a little bit more in the next program and learn about the everlasting gospel. You know, we are still in this uh, race. And my dear friend, you may have this opportunity to consider the invitation of the gospel to give yourself to God. We're inviting you to join us next time when we are going to look into this aspect a little bit more. Until then, may God richly bless you and continue to walk in the footsteps of Jesus.